With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. So 234 of Amazing Avenue Audio, the official podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. My name is Brian Salvatore. Thank you so much for listening. We're going to get to the main show in just a second. But earlier uh, this week, Chris McShane had a chance to talk to former Met, current SNY analyst Todd Zeal about a number of issues with the Mets. And uh, it's a fun little chat. And here it is. All right, so joining us on the podcast this week, uh, former Mets infielder, current SNY studio analyst, uh, Todd Zeal. Todd, thanks for spending a few minutes talking to us here at the game. My pleasure. Always good to be here. So, obviously, you were part of a Mets team that won a pennant. Um, that team in 2000 started the year with the same record the Mets have entering this game tonight, 7-7. Seven and seven. You know, when you're on a team that's expected to contend like that, is there any doubt? I know, like, we always hear it's one game at a time, that kind of thing. But, you know, what's the mentality of a team like that if the start is a little bit slower than maybe people expect? Well, I think the interesting thing about the 2000 team um, is that the, the 99 club did a lot to, um, you know, start to rise some of the expectations. But even going into 2000, we were definitely not favored. And we were definitely still a bit of an underdog comparatively to what this Mets team is now. So I think there's a little bit different dynamic, and I think it's a little bit more pressure on this team than there was on us. And um, as I've been saying, I mean, 7-7, seven and seven, still, that's a 500 record early in the season when this team has notoriously been a second-half um, team and a late-charging team. And so I, I think that right now there's nothing to worry about. There's nothing to panic about. Um, I think what, what you're going to see out of this team is going to be sort of finding their groove and coming together and being consistent the rest of the way. I think there's, um, you know, a few little growing pains that are being felt right now. Ray is kind of adapting a little bit at third, and I think trying to do too much at the plate, and I think he'll settle down and, and be more effective. And um, and then kind of guy like um, Zellman, who's throwing tonight, I mean, he's had a rough start, but... The guy's a solid guy. He could be a number three in a lot of rotations around the league. He's got a solid, hard sinker, and he's a guy that I think as he just sort of feels more comfortable in that role, he's going to burn up innings, get a lot of ground balls, and do a great job in that fifth starting spot. So um, I don't think there's anything to worry about. I think there are going to be a lot of wins in this uh, in this team. Yeah, yeah. Gazelman's a guy who we've been on the same page. You know, this is a guy who other teams – 
Um, the Twins come up a lot because I have a cousin who's a diehard Twins fan, but they would kill to have him, you know, in, in the middle of their rotation right now. So that's a positive. With Reyes, you know, is there anything particular you see at the plate that, that gives you hope just because he's gotten off to such a slow start? Um, something that is either fixable or that he, you know, has done in the past? I, th- I think the, um, the thing with Reyes is really not so much about mechanics. It never has been. I think it's about him being able to just slow down the game a little bit because I think he feels like he has so much to prove here and he's so thankful for the opportunity and he's so glad to be back in New York and he's so glad to be a part of this great team and he found himself instead of being the super utility guy that he thought he was going to be maybe coming into this he's playing every day leading off and playing third base Um, so with all of those things I think he's just a little bit too hyped and um, he needs to just kind of get back to the comfortable feel of a guy that's a veteran guy. He's a veteran proven guy. Um, but right now he's swinging at pitches that are out of the zone. He's trying to do too much at the plate. And, um, you know, look, if, if I'm talking to him every day, I'd be saying, hey, relax, take more pitches, try to draw a walk, get hit by a pitch, do, you know, lay down a bunt, do things that are going to slow down the game a little bit for you, and then the hits will start to pile up. Yeah. Um, one of the guys who I know you talked about on SNY in the preseason, you know, spring training is going on, was obviously Conforto. Uh, things because of injuries with Nimmo's hamstring, primarily, and also with Ligaris with the oblique, you know, they, they might have played out a little bit differently than we expected over the first couple of weeks of the season. But, you know, with that sort of mixed playing time that everybody's getting other than Cespedes uh, at this point, you know, do you think that's something that can sustain itself with success for the, each of these guys over the course of the year? I think it makes it a lot tougher personally. Um, and I think that the Mets are just really in a, sort of a tough spot. I mean, it's, at the end of the day, it's tough to complain about the fact that you've got a proven 30-year-old run hitter named Jay Bruce um, or an up-and-coming star named Michael Conforto. You're going to have to split some time with them or give them, figure out how to give them both at bats. But... Um, I don't think anybody really expected, in all sincerity, for Bruce to be here. There was a, you know, a lot of an effort to make a proper trade for him, but at the same time, he's carrying a $13 million salary on a guy that had a subpar season for him at the end of the year last year, even though his numbers overall were fine. So, um, look, I'm a big believer in Michael Conforto. I think he's going to be a great player in this league for a long time. And I think he's the type of guy that has the right mindset and temperament to be able to handle um, the role that he's in, but I think eventually you're going to have to get this guy in the game every day. Yeah, yeah. Um, so question about, I guess, you know, your transition into doing analysis on TV and talking about baseball, you know, obviously it's something that a lot of former players do. You know, it's a common for that role to be filled by former players, but how did you come to it? Um you know, I think you had done some stuff a while back, uh, and then you know now you're you're with SNY on a fairly regular basis. You know, was that transition like getting back into baseball in that capacity for you? You know what? That was an interesting long road. It's the it's the uh, it's the singer that's an overnight success after 15 years of doing it, right? So, um, ironically, when I left the game with the Mets after the 2004 season. I had a lot of opportunities in broadcasting, and I, um, I 
had made this um, sort of right or wrong and made this commitment to um, spend time at home be around the kids not want to travel the jobs that I was um, looking at were east coast jobs I was a west coast guy and so I kind of took this contrarian view that I'm not going to be defined by baseball and I'm going to go prove myself in other aspects of business and so on and so on and I, I took that to an extreme and, and, and did some damage at the same time but it, it, it kind of created a meandering experience for me that included film and television production as opposed to being on the camera and broadcasting and um, some real estate and some other things that now um, most recently my foray into another business has given me an opportunity to be here in New York on a full-time basis and given me an opportunity to kind of have some time back with us at Wyand. The Wilpon family has always been great to me. They're they're great family and friends to me and have been since my playing days. So I got greatly recommended coming into uh, that with Kirk Gowdy Jr. And so the opportunity I've been given there is great and I'm, I'm just trying to take advantage of it while I can. Nice. Uh, so last thing, I guess maybe it's obvious, but uh, in your time playing for the Mets, any one particular game that stands out as, as the best one? Um, you know, it's an interesting, I get asked that question quite a bit, <laughs> and I think, um, look, I had, I had a great time in the World Series. It was an amazing uh, run. My, I had a, a big hit in the National League Championship uh, final game against the Cardinals, which was my nemesis because it was my first team. All of those things were important moments, but I think the 9-11, the post-9-11 game uh, at Shea Stadium with uh, Mike's big home run, um, I had a base hit in that game. I, I was into that game where wearing the, the hats of the, the fallen firefighters and, and first responders, and I think that to me was... Uh, Probably my one of my most special moments in all of uh, my years of baseball. Yeah, yeah, no, that that one that is a special game. I think for everyone who was either there or just even watching on TV. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a good one. So, thanks for joining us. Good luck with everything on SNY and everything else, and uh, we look forward to watching you pre and post game. Thanks. Look forward to being on it. Thank you for having me today. Oh yeah, absolutely. All right, you got it. Uh. All right, Chris, we are recording on Monday night. The Mets just lost three of four to the Marlins in a very, very frustrating four-game series. But we're here to talk about the Mets. We have some of your emails to get through, and so we're going to dig right in. This email comes to us from I've Already Closed the Window. <laughs> I have two guesses. What are your guesses? Well, it's either Johnny or David. I don't. I don't know. Well, spoiler it w- alert for later in the show. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh-huh. Is it the Philly one or the other one? No, it's the other one. All right. So, David. Hi, Brian and Chris. I have been surprised that utilizing a six-man rotation on a regular basis has been floated but rarely implemented by the Mets over the last few years. Here are my thoughts. Number one, keeping the Mets' young starters healthy is a priority. Number two, the Mets, like most teams, propose doing so by limiting innings pitched slash starts and innings pitched per season. 
Number three, no one's been able to prove that 100 pitches per start every five or six days keeps pitchers healthy. Number four, a six-man rotation would limit innings pitched per season while allowing Terry more freedom to let the starter go an extra inning or two, maybe aim for 125 pitch cap, since the starter would only be pitching every sixth or seventh day, depending on an off day that week. A few things to keep in mind. I'm writing this email after the Mets had the most frustrating weekend in recent memory. If Thor, DeGrom, and Harvey had each pitched one additional inning in their start, the Mets might have won the series in Miami. Yet, I didn't disagree with Terry's decision to remove the starters. With a five-man rotation, keeping our young starters around 100 pitches seems logical, even if never proven to prevent injuries. Just think about how much more exciting the Mets would be, and I assume more successful, if their starters could regularly pitch seven to eight innings and then have about a week off. I also recognize this, this isn't the best time to implement a six-man rotation, being that Rafael Montero would currently be in that slot. But if Stephen Matz comes back strong, this is something that the Mets should strongly consider. Finally, I began really thinking about this issue a few years ago when Dylan G had to go to the minors so the Mets starters could stay on a five-man rotation. Everything in baseball is changing or has changed within the last few years. Why do teams hold the five-man rotation up as sacred? Love the podcast, David. Uh, thank you for the email, David. Uh, Chris, which part of this do you want to take first? Uh, I guess let's work it back a little bit. So I think the reason why rotations have stayed, there's sort of just the inertia of it, right? So much baseball is inertia, yeah. Yeah, so it's just not quick to change in a lot of ways. I think it's partly that, partly the limitations, especially in the National League of a 25-man roster. Uh you know, I'd be a little less surprised to see an American League team do it since they can carry a four-player bench and, you know, get away with it. A lot of them do it anyway just because they have the DH. It gives you some more flexibility on a, you know, day-to-day and week-to-week basis. So I, I think it that's part of it. Um, in terms of, and I'm not uh, disputing that the weekend was frustrating because it was, Hot damn it was. But, man, I don't know. It's Given the context of where they are in the season and the fact that the record is still okay and all of that, I uh, it, it might rank, but it would not place for me for frustrating weekends in recent memory. But that's just a... Uh, I guess it depends how, how loose your definition of recent is. I'd, I'd say last two years. You know, going back to the start of 2015, there there have been some down times, even in the good times. I think there's a difference between a bad weekend and a frustrating weekend. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Like, I, I mean, I, I watched the Mets and Rangers go 0-5. I watched all of all of those games, and <laughs> except for the Rangers being bad on Sunday night, uh, every game was close until late, and every one of them ended the wrong way. Yeah. So, so yeah, I'm not, I don't know. Um, it's Monday evening now as we record this and I'm not over it, but I guess just slightly removed. Well, you are always the optimistic one. So that is, yeah. that's part well, of this too. Yeah. Without going too far off the rails here, I think the Mets are going to be fine. And I think, I don't think this email uh, would disagree with that sentiment. No, you know, th- this is just one of those weekends where, there were a bunch of things that I think seemed so clear to the, at least to me watching the series, that just weren't being reflected on the field. 
whether it was the ineptitude of Jose Reyes, whether it was the continued shoddy bullpen management of Terry Collins, whether it was, you know, there's, there was just, there were a number of things that just seemed, or, well, you know, sitting Darno on Saturday night for reasons I will still never understand. You know, there's just, there were so many little decisions like that, that, that we're not talking this. I mean, there were some things that were purely, you know, a, a batter beating a pitcher or a pitcher throwing a good pitch to beat a batter. I never get mad about stuff like that. I get mad about stuff that seems, and again, I, I am by no means an expert, stuff that seems pre- preventable. You know what right. I'm saying? Yeah, and, yeah. And a lot of this weekend seemed very preventable. Right. And coming out of it, I think it would be, you know, it's unfair to take every close game and go, oh, man, they should really be 10-3. Uh, and three. You know? turning after the 16 inning game, turning all the close games into wins. Like sometimes those games are just not going to go your way. Right. But it does feel like they could at least be, you know, have eight or nine wins uh, with some minor changes along the way. So yeah, that I'm not saying it was enjoyable. (laughs) I'm just saying when you say most frustrating and, and talk about the Mets, you know, there's, there are some other contenders in the mix. Fair enough. But let's get back to the question at hand. Right, the actual rotation. Yes. Yeah, I think that the six man the six man rotation is hamstrung by both valid and invalid concerns. You know, you, uh, David asked us about a six man rotation. I think the majority, maybe not the majority, a large swath of baseball fans over fifty probably wish it was still a four man rotation. So, you know the. It's not like the five-man rotation is is universally loved and accepted at the moment. I think it's tolerated by a lot of baseball fans who think that today's pitchers are, you know, uh, insert euphemism for weak here, you know, soft or, you know, coddled or whatever, whatever the sort of uh, Joe Morgans of the world would call them, you know. Right, so well, even, even Keith Hernandez dabbles in that sort of oh, absolutely. analysis from time to time. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that you just don't know because nobody does it, whether or not it actually makes any difference in pitcher health. Right. And so many teams would have to do it for so long before there was any usable data. Yeah. So yeah, in terms of the general concept, I'm not necessarily personally opposed to it. You know, I, I don't know. Nobody knows what would prevent essentially the rash of Tommy John surgeries, right? That that's other injuries. I think there had been something written uh, a year or two ago, and then the way time goes, this might have been five years ago for all right. <laughs> for all I know, um, but written at some point in the modern era of baseball, uh, talking about shoulder injuries having decreased very significantly. Uh, but elbow injuries having gone up. So nobody's got that figured out yet. I wouldn't be opposed to being the team that had a six-man rotation, and if there ever were a time to do it, it would be in a case where, say, Mats comes back or Lugo comes back. Right. Um, and, and, you know, in the case of either one of them, they're, they're effective – it's just it's hard for any team. And I feel like as Mets fans, we have the opportunity to talk about this because we go 
and look, and hey, right now there are five excellent or above average or at least good pitchers in this rotation. You look around the league, there aren't that many teams that go deeper than three or four where you, you're comfortable. Right. Um, so, you know, despite all of the uh, discussion of starting pitching depth, and despite the fact that Montero would be number six today, yeah, well, it, that the Mets are still in a much better place than, oh, absolutely. than most teams. Uh, I'm not saying the Twins would kill for Montero, but man, they would, you know, probably do it for Gazelman. Oh yeah, or Lugo. Right, guys who have a shot at being, you know, maybe a depending on which one of them you're talking about, maybe a, a three or four, maybe a two or three if Gazelman really, you know, plays up to the ceiling that I think a lot of evaluators have seen with him. If he figures out this season. Yeah. So we're in a very luxurious place, I guess yes. is my overall point. And I wouldn't be opposed to seeing this. It's just the easiest time to do it is September when the rosters expand. You know, you can have a hundred guys in the bullpen and on the bench and go with that philosophy so that it, you know, you can fill in gaps uh, that might be created by lesser pitchers pitching in a rotation. Yeah. I, I wonder if this is something that the uh, players association will get behind because it would be, if this were to happen on a wide scale level, like you said, dude, you'd probably have to expand the rosters by a position player or two, or just by a player or two rather. And the players union usually is all first something like that because it gets, you know, their their representative body will would appreciate more jobs. That's a good thing. But I also wonder if there'd be some pushback from the more traditionalist members of the players union. I feel like some of those baseball players are the most traditional fans that are out there you know um it is an interesting question though and i would not mind the mets experimenting with it and i think that depending on how pitcher health looks a month or so from now it's not the craziest idea in the world either i just don't know how you manage the rest of the of the roster with that right if mats comes back you know we've seen the mets make a go of it early this year with eight men in the bullpen instead of seven and we're going to get to somebody who's currently mostly starting, but could be on the bench that could be hindering the plans to succeed with a four man bench. Yes. Um, you know, they've done it early, but I think we are still, you know, at this moment in the pre familia era of this roster. And I think his return makes a difference in, not only, you, you know, obviously somebody has to go when he returns, but I think it sort of shapes the bullpen in a way that will be a little bit more definitive. You know, yeah. Essentially, I'm saying once he's back, I think it'll be a seven-man bullpen the rest of the year until September, of course. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I wonder if there's a way to do it where... I guess one of the benefits of a six-man rotation is you'd have more time in between starts. So would you use some of your starters on their throw days out of the bullpen? 
Right, that's Cause, another thing cause, to because if that's the if the, if that's the case, then you don't have to worry about the extra roster spot. If you figure that the the five starters that aren't pitching that day equal a bullpen arm, right, a usable bullpen arm. Yeah, yeah. I, the, I guess one thing that you get into is just that even if you mix in starters as relievers uh, in, in that kind of scenario, you know, if a guy really gets shelled and your bullpen is short, if that's where you're cutting, you know, say you went down to a six-man bullpen, which I don't think they would do, but say you did that and somebody gets shelled, then all of a sudden you get into a place where you've got a lot of uh, – ground to make up in terms of innings right it's an interesting question though and it's like, like we both said i think it's when we'd, we'd be open to seeing but i'm really surprised you haven't seen a team like the rockies try this yet because the, the rockies have had such trouble fielding a competent pitching staff over their history You'd think that this would be right up their alley. You know, they, I know they experimented a couple years ago with a low pitch count from their starters, which is sort of the opposite of this, I guess. Uh, right. But I'd be interested to see how how it would work for a team like that. Yeah. All right. Well, um, we're going to take a quick look at the the season thus far. And since we last recorded, Chris, we're going we're gonna to share a – both a, a, a player that's made a positive impression and a player that's made a negative impression. And why don't we start with your positive impression first? So mine is Travis Darno, And he's somebody who came into the year with a lot of people being down on him. You know, he didn't hit well last year. Obviously, the much-publicized uh, stolen base issue. Um. His framing number still looks good, but he got hurt again. So he didn't play that much. He didn't hit that much. People tend to perceive catcher defense as being only throwing out runners. Right. And even if you don't necessarily think that as much weight should be given to framing as has been uh, at baseball prospectus and certainly in other parts of you know the statistical baseball internet i think it would be foolish to say it doesn't matter right like that that's clearly not the case maybe it doesn't matter as much as has been presented but it certainly matters so it's very early uh you know we can sort of preface everything we're saying with that at this stage but there are actual games to look at and darno couldn't be off to a better start Really, you know, the first week was so so for him hitting, and then he just took off. So, you know, at the moment, uh, he's third in F WAR for catchers on the season. That's not something that you you don't you don't pace that out over 162 games. Obviously, he's you know not no catcher is going to play that many, but even if you assumed 120 or 130. You don't pace it out over that. It doesn't mean he accomplished anything. He's not an MVP contender today. But, man, like the the swing looks better. Uh, There have been some results early. You know, there just hasn't been any glaring flaw. And that, to me, is the catcher that we were excited about when he came back in 2015. Yep. And, yeah, I mean, I, I... 
I understood that people were concerned, but I think he was kind of buried after last season. And right now, that looks foolish. Hopefully, it looks foolish all year. You know, I don't know if he'll necessarily maintain any of the rates that he's put up so far. Uh, but there's there's something tangible there. There's real results that, hey, this guy might still be at least above average and maybe even better than that, you know. And he hasn't gotten hurt yet. <laughs> Very true. There are two games between this recording and the podcast release. <laughs> that is true. Uh, hopefully you haven't jinxed him. <laughs> not, I not, the, not that we believe in jinxes. jinxes. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, yeah. Would you, would you like to go positive? Sure, sure. Uh, my positive is another player that I think we all have high hopes for, but there was a certain amount of doubt. Although I think that fans doubted this player far less than the perceived Mets organization did. That's Michael Conforto. Uh, Conforto seems to be right in the middle of everything right now. When he plays, he is hitting. He made an incredible throw from the outfield this weekend. He looks every bit like the Michael Conforto of last April and of the 2015 postseason, where he just looked like the sky was the limit and he was comfortable and confident. I mean, the other night he came in with a runner on third base as a pinch hitter. I forget if it was Saturday or Sunday he came in in this position, and, uh, you know, was just walked in the, the batter's box, and you just, you, you watch him, and there's just, he just looks so confident, he looked so sure of himself, which he did not look late in last season, and he, you know, drove a ball that missed being a home run by 10 feet, and drove in the run, and did exactly what was asked of him, and it seems like every time he came up over the weekend, he was delivering, and, uh, I don't know how the Mets deal with this situation at this point. I don't know if this is enough playing. I mean, he's he's clearly thriving in this limited role, but you have to know that he's the player of the future, more so than almost anybody else in their outfield. So you have to get him more playing time. I just don't know how that playing time comes about. Yeah, I mean, I think it's... I think it'll be there. It's been good, you know that he's able to succeed in this role so far. Um, you know, I don't think any of the left-handed hitting outfielders they have is an ideal center fielder, but you know, I think it's a situation that it's a great problem to have. Yeah. Uh, so we'll see, you know, we'll see how it goes. I, Granderson should be better than this. Bruce may not you know, maintain the level of hitting that he's been at. So I think just between health and rest and performance, you can check in two weeks from now, a month from now, you know, see where things stand and who's doing what, and then sort of tweak your outfield alignment from there. But it certainly doesn't seem right now, like if Nimmo is healthy, that Conforto is going to go down to play every day so Nimmo can play part-time, which I think probably would have been the case if everybody were healthy to start the year. Yeah, agreed. Uh, okay, who's your who's your negative? So, Gazelman is probably going to be fine. <laughs> but uh, I didn't really have a 9.28 ERA through two starts in mind. Hopefully the start on Wednesday night against Philly goes much better. 
but I don't know. You, you, Marcelo's going to hit a couple home runs against him, both of which combined with some walks and you know, there were other things, but Ozuna himself was sort of like Gazelman's personal wrecking crew. <laughs> so I'm not alarmed or anything. Everything looks fine with this stuff. Um, but, you know, somewhat disappointed. He's a guy who I was like, oh, I'm going to be the smart guy and draft Robert Gazelman on all my fantasy teams. <laughs> and everybody else is drafting these mediocre, crappy dudes. And I think that's still going to work out. Um you know, but just talking in real life, what, what you know, fantasy sports, or just talking to other Mets fans, baseball fans, and hyping him up, he could not have made those things look worse <laughs> in his yeah. first two starts. And I think he's going to be just fine. But that has been an early disappointment for me, I guess. Uh, mind Jacob is no surprise to anybody with eyes. It's Jose Reyes. Yeah, he was bad before we last spoke but he has looked abysmal since we last spoke i mean he just looks absolutely lost at the plate he does not he doesn't appear to have a game plan when it comes with the bat which i remember being a, a concern of mine when he was in met the first time around but you think as he's gotten older he would perhaps have uh you know, developed a bit more of an eye. And if I'm, I'm not saying he's going to turn into, uh, you know, insert high on base percentage player here, but just have a bit of a plan that comes to the, to, the, to the plate. He just seems to have no plan whatsoever. He's flailing the balls outside the strike zone. He is letting fat pitches just sail past him without even so much of, as a swing. He's getting beaten by mediocre fastballs. He is making weak contact if he's making contact at all. I believe he still has one extra base hit this season. Right, yeah, it was the one double. Yes, and that was kind of a cheap double fire call, too. He didn't drive the ball, you know. uh, Yeah, yeah, no, true. You know, and yes, it's early. Yes, he could turn it around. But this looks considerably more like the summer of 2015 Jose Reyes than the summer of 2016 Jose Reyes. Yeah, and he's gotten a lot of playing time. He was finally moved out of the leadoff spot, at least temporarily. Uh, He got a day or two off, but got back in there. You know, it's... I don't know. I don't know. You know, it's in a month, maybe this all looks silly and he's doing good things, but in the limited times he's been on base, which... Really, it, it's really, really been limited. But yeah. he hasn't even attempted to steal a base yet, which is something that you might expect him to do less frequently with time. But part of the justification of a major league roster spot for Jose Reyes should still be that he's going to attempt to steal bases. I mean, that has to be a large piece of the equation. Because... Like I said, he might get better than this. He might get on base at a respectable clip and start hitting. Last year, he was hitting for power in a way that he hadn't really uh, in recent history. It's just, uh, I don't know. I, I'm To me, the question is, if it doesn't get better, how long is it tenable to keep a player with a sub-200 on-base percentage on your roster? 
Well, I think that there's two questions there. The first one is how long to keep him in the starting lineup. I think we're past that. Oh, we are, but Terry Collins (laughs) is going to keep putting him out there. Yeah. I think, you know, maybe one or two starts a week, give Cabrera a rest at short, give Flores, or, I mean, I know TJ Rivera is uh, currently in Las Vegas, but give Flores a rest at third, depending on how things shake out, whatever, you know, it's... You can give Duda a day off now and then if you need to, or Walker a day off now and then if you need to, by using Reyes in the infield. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think that would be the way I would go with it. And then if he puts together some good games in that role, again, all right, he's gotten better. We've seen a little bit more of the other guys. We we see some things we can believe in and, and play him on a regular basis. But, you know, it, it's a very small sample but it's also not nothing it is certainly not nothing especially because last season with the Mets was such an aberration not aberration it was just it was an anomaly in the last few years of Reyes's career he looked so much better as a Met than he looked as a Rocky or as a Blue Jay and you know you attribute some of that to he's playing back where he wants to be he's he's in a position where he's comfortable and that's great, but if he's not succeeding with all of those factors still being the case, that's cause for concern. Yeah, and I would say his defense at third has still not looked very good. No, it it, it hasn't quite been terrible, but it's, it's certainly not very good. Right, yeah, it's not a case of a shortstop moved off that position and move to third and then kind of, you know, seeing a little bit of a bump uh, in, in defensive performance as a result. So yeah, it's as much as a player could look like toast this early in the year. He has, and I'll just throw in too. And the dude's a hall of famer and I respect the hell out of him and I love him. But Ichiro also oh man looks he looked, like he's done. He looked absolutely toast this weekend. Yeah, when, I don't know when uh when Jerry Blevins struck him out on a curveball, it just looked so unlike Ichiro. You know that guy doesn't strike out that often, and he struck out. I want to say it was at least three times over the weekend. That that would be news for Ichiro even three years ago. Right. Yeah, I mean, he's he's only gotten up there 12 times, but he's struck out in six of those. Wow. Played appearances. The, the, yeah, as you're saying, that is the most un-Ichiro thing ever. I I would wager that he probably hasn't done that in that short a span of time in his career. Yeah, I don't know if he's ever had in a 12 at bat span of any at, at any point in the season where he struck out six times in those 12 bats. Yeah, so I don't know. <laughs> it sucks seeing players who, you know, had success in the past get to that point, especially a guy like him. Yeah. And, you know, Reyes isn't as old, and he may not be at the end of the line, but if you were of the belief that he was, he would be giving you plenty of support for your case right now. Now, let me ask you this, Chris. Do you think that Reyes will get 
Well, not not do you think how many more games will Reyes get because he's Jose Reyes? If if this was Kelly Johnson brought in on, at the league minimum, does does Reyes have a longer leash than Kelly? How much of a longer leash does Reyes have than Kelly Johnson? I would say quite a bit longer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, how many more games as a starter? You think? Is that what is that what you're? Uh, no, let's let's go with roster spot. Okay, so if he doesn't considerably improve, yes, I bet he still gets another two months. And if it was Kelly Johnson, how long would Kelly Johnson get? Two weeks. <laughs> and that's what's driving me crazy. Is they could have signed Kelly Johnson. Yeah, is he still unsigned? Yeah, he's still sitting on the couch someplace. That's insane. Come on, Sandy, make it happen. Yeah. I mean, even right now, you could make an argument to bring him back when you go back to the regular bullpen without changing anything else about the roster. That's true. I mean, you've got right now Montero, Edgen, and Gil Martin are all candidates for demotion when Familia returns. Um, and if, you know, when you go back to a normal configuration of bullpen and bench. So, yeah. It's crazy that Johnson doesn't have a contract. Yeah, it just doesn't make any sense. He was useful on a contending team two yeah. years in a row. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe he would. It, it, the weird thing is that Atlanta is like his home team. He's played for them a bunch of times now. You know, they went with a veteran approach in a few spots on that roster as they're still in their sort of waiting. C period. Yeah. During the tweener period. Yeah. So I, I don't know how he's not on that team. I, it doesn't really make any sense. I mean, it doesn't seem like a, you know, like a malcontent kind of. No, he seems know. like a good guy. Yeah. I mean, we don't know. Right. He could be the Maybe world's biggest like prick. the worst, you know, person to be around in baseball, but didn't seem that way. It doesn't look that way from afar. You know, certainly it looks like he's embraced by the team when he's on it. <laughs> As a Met, the dude's got good numbers. Absolutely. All right, Chris, we have one more email to take us home. Uh, all right, this email, we should we should say this was sent in before the Mets' frustrating weekend in Miami. Uh, this is from John. In a bizarre world, the Mets home park was Citizens Bank Park in Philly. What type of stats would the players put up? And as a fan, could you stomach a trade-off of the Mets playing in Philly to get these results? Let's say they remain the New York Mets, but the Wilpons cut a deal to play in Philly to save some money. Hey, it's a bizarre world. John ends the email with. Um, I think this would affect you more than this would affect me. Because you go to far more games than I do. That's true. So, for my... Five or six games a year. I'm not going to go to Philly for five or six games a year. But I'd go for three games a year, probably, or four games a year. Yeah. And so, uh, I mean, the, the downside of this also is you have to realize, that while, yes, um, yeah, the Mets would hit far more home runs in, in playing in Philly, so would every other team they play. Yeah, that's true. I mean, they've seemed to fare. They've been playing the Phillies. Yeah. No, no, I know. They, but they seem to fare well, uh, particularly there. 
you know. Yeah. And it's so weird to go from that place seeming like a house of horrors uh, back in the six, seven, eight era, mostly seven and eight, <laughs> to what it is now. But, I mean, I, I joked at some point during that series that if the Mets played their home games, or no, if they played all their games there, they would go 162-0. and 0. <laughs> Yeah. They would, so, win, they would win 120 games easy. They played all their games there. Yeah. Well, I mean, you have a you have a roster that's built to hit home runs. It's fairly easy to do that there. You know, so if you're if you got a bunch of guys who are hitting fly balls with some authority, pretty much every borderline you know, the outfield center field there is not easy. But anything that's borderline to right or left at City Field would be out there. Oh yeah. And uh you know, you have high strikeout pitchers pretty much across the board. So that that combination, even if the pitcher's performance has struggled, you know, suffered a little bit, I should say, I think their propensity for strikeouts on the mound and hitting home runs at the plate would translate very well. Uh, in terms of giving up playing games in New York, I mean, man, that would be that'd be tough. But I enjoy a good cheesesteak. I don't know. I don't know if I would I sell it all. Would I would I take the Mets out of Queens if it meant that they could uh, call themselves New York despite not playing anywhere near New York? I mean, I live much closer to either New York football team than you do. This is true. I mean, Philly's only an hour forty five from the Bronx, right? Yeah, with no traffic. I'm rationalizing here. I don't know if you heard on the broadcast a couple days ago, Keith was talking about how he found a great new restaurant in Philly. Um, I probably did, but refresh my memory. It was one of the best moments of the, of the weekend because he's talking about how he found this nice little restaurant and uh, how, you know, it's kind of a hole in the wall near X location in Philly. And Gary Cohen said, the boys in the truck want to know why you lowered your voice whenever you make a restaurant recommendation. <laughs> <laughs> and he said it was because he doesn't like giving out free advertising. So it was a pretty nice Keith moment. But yeah, I feel like if the Mets played their home games in Philly, I mean, I mean, let's be fair. How many series did the Phillies come to New York for every year? Three series? Yeah, three. Yep. So if the Phillies were playing in queens now you could technically get to between nine and 12 games a year just by still going to watch the mets games at city field right yeah that is true if it was a trading places kind of scenario yeah i hope we're eddie murphy in this trading places scenario yes (laughs) uh but no it's a it's a silly question but it's a fun question um, who do you think would be the player to benefit the most from playing there? Hmm. I I mean, I go to Cespedes just because, but I, I think he's fine anywhere. So I think somebody else would be a little more, you know, boosted by the he, stadium. He doesn't seem to be cheated in many stadiums. No, I feel like, Maybe like your Walker Cabrera. 
type hitters. Darno, maybe. Yeah. Yeah, guys who, I mean, they've all hit long home runs in their careers. Darno has hit some particularly long ones. Um, but guys who you think maybe a little bit more doubles and line drives, even though two of them hit over 20 home runs last maybe year. Maybe Conforto actually is the guy. That's true. Yeah, right field there is like such a joke. Yeah. You know, it's not Yankee Stadium where the dimension is so short and, and then it doesn't really increase for a while. It's just how many times have you seen a fly ball start in that direction and then go, oh. <laughs> Shit. <laughs> yeah, that's a home run here. Not only that, but because it's a smaller outfield in general, Conforto's arm, which we've seen shown off a few times now, would probably look even better in that type of an atmosphere. Yeah. Yeah, this is true. That's my bet that Conforto will be the best, uh, the most, the most beneficial player. Although anyone in their offense would be would benefit from this move. So, yeah, I think luckily, even the Wilpons aren't this cheap, though. Uh, correct. <laughs> so, all right, Chris. Next time we'll uh, we'll check in with the team. We'll be after their next homestand and I'll be seeing you at the game on Saturday, right? Um, yeah, we're both going to be there. If you guys are at the game on Saturday, tweet at us and, uh, maybe we'll get a beer or something. Yeah. 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 That, uh, that is the plan. And if we have Matt Harvey gnomes, I don't get the obsession. Neither do I, but I'll gladly sell that on eBay. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right, guys. We'll see you at the game. This is Steve Saipa, and I'm back to go over our minor league players of the week. So before we get to that, let's just look and see how the affiliates did in week two. The Las Vegas 51s went 4-3 and three and are entering week three with a 5-5 five and five record. The Binghamton Rumble Ponies went 2-5 and five and are entering week three with a 4-3 and three record. The St. Lucie Mets went 4-3 and three and are entering week three with a 5-5 five and five record. And finally, the Columbia Fireflies went 4-3 and three and are entering Week 3 with a 7-3 and three record. So our Pitcher of the Week for Week 2 is Columbia Fireflies right-hander Colin Holderman. He made one start, he pitched six innings, he allowed one hit, he did not walk a batter, and he struck out 11. So Holderman was drafted last year in the ninth round of the draft out of Heartland Community College, which is in Illinois, He was assigned to Kingsport, and he pitched in 12 games, all out of the bullpen, and his numbers weren't exactly that encouraging. He posted a a 4.32 ERA in 16.2 innings, striking out 9 and walking 11, which translates to a 4.9 strikeout per 9 rate and a 5.9 walk per 9 rate. Uh, Holdeman is a guy I said last year in our draft review could be something of a steal, and he didn't exactly impress in his debut last year, but he showed glimpses of uh, his potential in his debut this year. Of course, though, because, you know, Lowell Mets, he's removed from his second start early, uh, apparently complaining of some kind of arm issue. 
So that's not good. And on top of that, he suffered from arm issues last season. So, you know, put two and two together and that might not be good. But in an ideal world, you know, his fastball sits in the low 90s and has topped out as high as 97 in the start that he made last week uh, against the Augusta Green Jackets. He was sitting 89 to 93. So coupled with his history of arm issues and the fact that he was removed from his second start, that could be a sign of uh, injury, you know, his diminished velocity right there. His slider is his best secondary pitch. It flashes plus. And honestly, it might have been the best slider in the entire Mets draft class last season. And that includes uh, Justin Dunn and slider specialist Austin McGeorge. So if he can continue honing that pitch, you know, he might have something special there. In his start this week, half of the sliders that he threw went for strikes. And most of those strikes are swing and misses, which is encouraging. Uh, his changeup is a pitch. It's uh, still in development, but he has a good feel for it. He uses it mostly against lefties and mostly as a, you know, go fishing kind of pitch since all the changes that he threw in his start were, you know, down out of the zone. And really, um, in order to improve that pitch, he needs to concentrate on maintaining his release point because he telegraphs the pitch quite a bit. Uh, he lowers his release point way lower than uh, all of his other pitches. So he really needs to just work on that. Uh Last season and in college, his delivery was kind of almost Bronson Arroyo-esque, where you know he has that big kick forward where his lower where his uh, lower leg um, gets almost parallel to the ground. But in spring training, coaches tweaked a little bit, and it's a little bit more subdued. He lost the big uh, leg kick, and he just kind of uses a normal leg lift. And he falls off the rubber a little bit more violently to get some more torque and add a little extra to his fastball. Um, given that he hurt himself, apparently, maybe they'll reverse that when he's cleared to get back on the mound. But either way, um, Holderman coming through would be you know great for the system. Uh, we already have uh, quite a few promising young arms in that level. And to add Holderman to that list would be uh, quite a boon. Now we'll look at the hitter of the week, and honestly, that was a tough one since there are quite a few good performances this week, but I'm going to go with the Las Vegas 51's first baseman, Dom Smith. Uh, Dom went 11 for 27 with two doubles, one home run, five RBI, four walks, one of which was intentional, and six strikeouts. Um, his home run came off of Fresno's Gri Fresno Grizzly center fielder, Andrew Applin, who was getting some mop-up duty in what was then a 15-2 blowout. So maybe you want to take that home run with a grain of salt, or maybe you don't want to take it with a grain of salt. You know, so much of what Dom has been doing, good or bad, you could find reasonable circumstances to, you know, attach asterisks to all of it, really, you know. He's not showing power, you know, okay, yeah, but he's young. He is showing power, yeah, okay, but it was against such and such a pitcher. So, really, we're still in square one here with Smith. The camera isn't really the best in Vegas, so it's a little hard to tell, but it looks like Applin, who is a lefty, had a low three-quarter arm slot, which can be difficult for lefties. Um, and there were no velocity reports, but he did pitch in high school, so I guess it's reasonable to assume... That his fastball, let's say, was anywhere in the high 70s to low 80s. So Dom took two pitches down and in. And then he took a meatball that was almost right down the middle. 
the opposite way for a home run. So the optimists are going to say, yeah, home run number one, that's one of many more to come. And then the pessimists are going to say, yeah, but it was a meatball, and he looked late on, you know, an 80 mile per hour pitch, and he went the other way with it, and yeah, that's the PCL, and anywhere else, that probably would have just been a fly ball out, you know, I'm not going to pick for you, if, you know, you believe it, you believe it, if you don't believe it, then don't believe it, but there's no taking away all those hits that he logged this week, uh, he had three multi-hit games, he got on base every single day of the week, his peripherals were almost one-to-one, with four walks and six strikeouts. And he flashed a little bit of the leather. Um, you know, might be just a small sample size and my own personal biases, whatever. But he looked a little better with his defense you know, this week than he did in a couple of games that I saw him on Binghamton last year. So, I mean, he's a guy that, you know, defense at first base was something that he was always going to bring. And couple that with the questions about his conditioning and his weight... Um, but it looks like, you know, that's not really having an effect on him currently, and he's still uh, flashing the leather. So anyway, those are our Mets minor league plays of the week for week two, and I'll be back next week on Amazing Avenue Audio. This is Aaron York for Amazing Avenue Audio, and today we could talk about uniforms some more with the new new era logo on the caps that debuted last October and bothers me almost every time I see it because I haven't gotten used to it yet, but instead we'll end up talking about Jose Reyes, the player who not many fans are happy to see in a Mets uniform. Not only is he off to a really, really slow start at the plate, but then last night, as we're recording on a Wednesday, so Tuesday night, series opener against Philadelphia, Mets looking to break a three-game losing skid, and Jose Reyes uh, makes an error that pretty much cost the Mets the game. The, the If he makes this catch on a Pop-up routine, infield pop-up with two outs. The Mets go to the ninth inning with Addison Reed ready to close the door on the Phillies. Instead, we get an RBI double off of Fernando Salas. Of course, there are other people to blame. Perhaps Terry Collins should have brought Reed in Earlier for a four-out save instead of letting Fernando Salas hang around when he had struggled with two home runs given up against Miami. Of course, Addison Reed also gave up runs against Miami, but he's got a stronger track record. The point is, Jose Reyes, who's already struggling at the plate, just makes an absolutely horrible mistake in the field. Pretty much every Mets fan who saw it was probably reminded of Luis Castillo's faux pas against the Yankees. Of course, that would have been the last out of the game. Just made it even more dramatic and worse. But where the Mets Mets are now, trying to gain traction with a team that's supposed to compete for a World Series. They're trying to gain traction earlier in the season. To have a mistake like that happen when you've already lost three close games in a row is, is as tough as it is to handle this early in the year. 
when the games do count just as much as they do in September. So, so it's, it's tough for, for Mets fans to watch Reyes in the lineup day after day, knowing that it doesn't look like the guy who produced for them last year is coming back. He did hit eight home runs in about a third of a season. He played 60 games for the Mets, eight home runs. If he keeps that pace, it's going to surpass his career high of 19 home runs with the 2006 Mets. So you have to wonder if that sort of power spike is sustainable, especially since he was coming off of his of a pretty poor performance in his late Blue Jays and his short Rockies tenure where he just wasn't a great player anymore, and that's why the Mets were able to get him essentially for free because he just was not an asset anymore, and maybe some of that was because of his history with domestic violence, but maybe it was just because, well, it certainly was at least in part because he wasn't performing well anymore. So the problem, real problem here is not that Ray is making a lot of money because he's not. That's the good thing. The problem is that Terry Collins, according to his comments earlier, is still confident that Reyes can turn it around and be a good player for this team. And maybe he can, maybe he can't. The issue being that the Mets are not a great offensive club right now. They're second in the National League in home runs, but they're near the bottom in batting average and on base percentage. This club was built to be on offense, a a three true outcomes team. They're not going to steal a lot of bases. They're not going to hit for a high batting average, but you you expect them to get on base along with the home runs. And for the past For the past year now, they just haven't been getting on base that much, and Jose Reyes certainly isn't helping with that, and unless he gets his batting average up to 300 with high Babbitts the way he was earlier in his career, he's he's going to continue not helping with that, and since we don't think the power spike is going to continue, you've got a pretty empty guy. Reyes has never been a walk guy, and he's whiffing earlier this year. He's whiffing more than he did last year when he struck out about 17% of the time. That's really good for a guy who does hit for power like he did last year, but if even if he gets it gets his strikeout rate down to that seventeen percent against again this year he's he's probably not going to hit for the kind of power that's that's going to turn that into pr- a productive player so I personally would like to see the Mets try something else at third base, perhaps Wilmer Flores. We know he can at least mash against lefties he should be in the lineup. Every time there is a lefty on the mound, because a lot of the other Mets do not fare well against lefties. So Flores can be an asset there, and he's still young. He still has a chance to be a productive player if he can at least handle himself against righties. But we might not get to find out because Collins really likes Jose Reyes. It's going to probably take an a more extended period of time of poor production like this to get Jose Reyes on the bench. The good news is that he did hit a line drive in the gap for a double last night on Tuesday. And, of course, all I could think about was how that used to, that would have been a triple back in the day, but it is a good sign. He hit a line drive into the gap. Something good to see. But for now, it looks like while the Mets are in this slump, the, the Rays situation is going to dominate the conversation. At least he let the, the bullpen off the hook last night. 
the Mets did blow a lead to the Phillies, and they allowed four runs in the 10th inning. But when Uris Familia comes back in a day or two, hopefully it'll mean less Rafael Montero, who gave up those runs in the 10th. We might not have to see him anymore. So, and maybe we'll get to see more Josh Smoker since he is becoming a guy who maybe can pitch to both lefties and righties and turn into a setup guy because he looks pretty good so far. So I've rambled a little bit too long here, but the point is Jose Reyes. What is what? Is, what exactly are the Mets hoping to get from him? Because I don't think it's realistic to hope for the power. I don't think it's realistic to hope for a high on base percentage. So what do you what do you expect to get for this from this guy? The, the team isn't built around stolen, stealing bases anyway. It'd be nice to have someone like that at the top of the lineup, but Reyes clearly cannot be anywhere near the top, top of the lineup the way he's hitting now. So that's something to think about as the Mets continue to try to battle out of this losing streak. Hopefully by the time this hits the air, they will indeed be back in the win column. This has been Aaron York for Mason Avenue Audio. So we're going into Wednesday night's games, and the Mets have lost four games straight. And theoretically, this should be cause for concern, but they have just been really bad games. Like, they're just really stupid games. This wasn't lack of talent. This was just bad baseball. Jose Reyes still can't hit a ball to save his life. Rafael Montero should not be in the majors. The Mets need to never play in Miami again. Let's just get that one out of the way. Like, it hasn't been good baseball, they haven't been playing well, but not much of this is actually symptomatic of this team. It's just been a really bad week for the Mets. So, I don't know, it's kind of, it's just, it seems so off, like there's not a whole lot to talk about here, because everyone's just been playing weird. Conforto's looked pretty good, they've had him leading off for two games, two games I think, instead of Reyes. And he's looked fine. He looks like he can handle it. Shocker that Michael Conforto is actually a good baseball player. Everyone apparently seems to know that except for Terry Collins. Like I said, Jose Reyes is bad. It's just It just doesn't look good. And Terry is also not going to give up on him. He'll give up on Conforto, but not on Reyes. Rafael Montero is exactly what we all thought Rafael Montero was. The starters aren't going very deep into games, which has been extraordinarily taxing on the bullpens, so amazingly that hasn't gone well. Fernando Salas has pitched an obscene number of innings already, Jerry Blevins keeps coming out, and I'm just, you know, it's at this point where to say we have to get off the streak, we have to change baseball. Because whatever the Mets are doing right now is really not working, but I still think it's just they've fallen into a rut. I don't think this has anything to do with the actual talent on the field.
Well, folks, that does it for another installment of Amazing Avenue Audio. Thank you so much for listening. We truly appreciate it. If you wouldn't mind going over to not iTunes, but what is now called Apple Podcasts, and rate, review, and subscribe, it would be a big help to us. It's going to take me weeks, if not months, to get used to saying Apple Podcasts. Oh, boy. Anyway, you can also find the show on Stitcher, on your podcatcher of choice, or you can download it directly from blogtalkradio.com. You can also go to AmazingAvenue.com, where all the contributors you heard tonight will be writing articles over the next week or two about all sorts of fun things. Game recaps, news, uh, some opinion pieces, everything you can want as a Mets fan can be found at AmazingAvenue.com. You can also find the site on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Amazing Avenue. Uh, finally, and by the way, the Mets have won since we recorded the first part of this podcast, so uh, apologies for the slightly hyperbolic tone, but, uh, you know, here we are. Uh, finally, you can find all the contributors that were on tonight's show on Twitter. I am at Brian Izanap, Chris is at Chris McShane, Kate is at Kate E. Feldman, Aaron is at Aaron P. York, and Steve Saipa is at Steve Saipa. So thank you so much for listening. By the time you're hearing this, uh, the Mets have won, as I just said. And hopefully by the next time we talk, the Mets have won many times. So, until then, let's go Mets. (laughs) 